Welcome to another edition of the Dear Bitches Smart Authors Podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, along with Jane Litt from Dear Author. This is a special edition of our podcast. Each of us had the opportunity to interview historical romance author Stephanie Lawrence on her recent media tour in support of her new book, Viscount Breckenridge to the Rescue, and also in support of Avon's Kiss and Teal program. Avon's Kiss and Teal program is unique because it's both raising funds and awareness for ovarian cancer, and Ms. Lawrence is going to tell us a little bit about it. Our interviews were recorded by phone in two parts, each of us interviewing separately. I wondered if you could speak on the kind of impact that you think Devil's Bride and your sinister series has had on the romance genre. Oh, um, I think, I believe that it's one of the earliest um, groups of novels where um, prior to that we didn't have a lot of novels where they were in one series, one set, and I think Devil's Bride, uh, Devil's Bride was the first of the Sinsters, and that started off so many books from there. Uh, I think we're up to number 15, 16 now. And I can only think of Joe Beverly, who also had a series going about the same time. But I think we were the first two who started doing that sort of thing. Subsequently, a lot of other people got into families as well. One of the things that I found remarkable about Devil's Bride was that it had the hero in pursuit, which I thought at the time was a lot different than the stories that you saw from the 90s. Did you write that kind of trope, and, I, and you've continued to write that type of story since A Devil's Bride, but did you intentionally uh, set out to write that type of story, or was that the story that you wanted to read? I think my stories tend to be driven by the characters. So what happens is I've created these characters, and they're the characters that interest me. And when you put them together, what happens? So that's where that, uh, I suppose, rolls out from. It's the clash of the characters uh, and where they want to go, and that's what drives the story. So to a large extent, the trophy arises out of the characters. Your next book features a scholar hero, and I yes. wondered if you find him to be a different character uh, or a different type of hero than you had written in the past. Uh, to some extent, yes but it was more that his background was, and it was more a... With him, it's more an exploratory thing for the character. Like, the book, for both of them, for both the heroine and the hero, um, in fact, this second book in the trilogy, In Pursuit of Eliza Sinster, is the book we're talking about, it is really quite a different thing where both the hero and the heroine are undergoing a self-discovery journey. So although they're actually undergoing a physical journey as well, the real journey is their emotional uh, self-discovery. And once they discover who they really, really are, then they realise that, yes, they belong to together. Uh, but they wouldn't have thought they belong to... In fact, they don't think they uh, belong together when they start out that journey. Do you have a favourite trope or story that you like to tell... Like, I really love marriage of convenience stories. Um, you write a lot of um, kind of uh, capture stories. Do you have a favorite trope you like to write? Um, 
again, no, I don't think I got, I don't, the story doesn't come first for me. It's the uh, characters who come first. And so it's whatever story the characters are going to follow, whatever story arc, that's what determines uh, whether I'm writing this trope or that trope. I don't actually know what trope I'm going to be writing until I'm well into the story. So that's why I think I'm pretty clear on the fact that the characters have to come first uh, and they develop the story for me. I understand that you're a research scientist by training. Is there anything that you've used from your uh, scientist days in um, writing stories? Um, yes, actually. Uh, it's not direct, but it's my analytical side, if you like. And uh, I can remember my husband walking in on me one day when I was analysing one of my books because I write a draft and then I literally physically pull it to pieces and analyse whether all the story pieces are in there in the right order, whether the pacing is good or not, uh, all that sort of thing. And he saw me there with all these graphs of my book, my book reduced to graphs. And he just laughed and he said, no one would ever believe you're a scientist. <laughs> so, um, yes, I do use a lot of my analytical background in the way I construct my stories, but I write the stories first, then I work on them. What, uh, what do you think makes the Sinster family unique? What is drawing the readers to the Sinsters? I think I've always thought that it was the whole family background because I think that resonates with a lot of people, uh, not only these days but always. Uh, family is a very important element uh, and it's really, if you like, it's the outcome of a romance. Like a romance is the beginning of something and a family is the ultimate outcome. And I think most people who go into a romance, a lot of them have the concept of family uh, as their ultimate goal. So to me, it's that interaction of a large family which resonates with a lot of readers because a lot of readers have similar sized families, similar cousins. You know, it's not that the family is huge in itself, but the connections are all there, just like they are in real life for a lot of people. You're writing about a second generation set of sinsters. Do you perceive that you'll be writing third generation sinsters? Um, I haven't written second generation yet. These ones are still cousins, same, the same as the cousins. They're in the same uh, uh, generation. So I'm still actually on the cousins generation. I haven't stepped into the next generation yet. Uh, whether I ever will or not, I'm not sure, because it'll depend. I actually think I will at least do one book that I've already got in mind coming along um, with the next generation. But how many of them I'll do, I don't know, because they'll run into Victorian times. And right. in particular, they'll run into the part of Victorian times where women were very, very... Uh, repressed again and that makes it difficult to write the sort of heroines that I like to write. And what are the types of heroines that you enjoy writing? I enjoy writing the types of heroines who are going to be very proactive, who are going to go out there and essentially take life by the scruff of the neck and, and make it into what they want and not just, they're not passive. My heroines are never passive. Um, they can't, even when they try to be passive, they can't be passive. Uh, they have to go out there and meet the challenges of life. And to me, that's the thing that uh, really 
intrigues me about the female characters that I work with. Do you ever get requests to go and revisit uh, characters from, from previous books? Like, have you ever gotten a request that they'd like to see another um, Devil Honoria story? Yes, I, I have had requests, but you have to sort of point out to people that these are romances, that's why they sell. Uh, my readers, the vast majority of my readers, want a full-bodied romance in each book. And so you can't retell a romance that's been told. You can do other things, however, and I will be in some of the books coming up uh, where I'll be revisiting, for instance, Barnaby Adair and uh, Penelope, who were several books back, uh, and also Griselda and Stokes and uh, their, if you like, investigative uh, businesses. And those books will be revisiting those couples, but as well as that, each book will have a romance in it uh, so that you'll have what will satisfy a romance audience. So do you title your books or is that a collaborative effort uh, with Avon? It's very much a collaborative effort. It's actually between me, my editor and my agent. Uh, we've been working on together, the three of us have been together for, what, 15 years since I first started with Avon. And uh, we work together on every title now. Uh, in order to make what we want come out of the title. Uh, I must say the, the most recent titles, The Viscount Breckenridge to the Rescue, In Pursuit of Eliza Sinster, and the third book is The Capture of the Earl of Glen, Glen Cray. Uh, we particularly wanted to sort of have that adventure feel uh, in them, so and a bit of drama, adventure, Scottish Highlands, that sort of thing. So we developed the titles for that. I haven't been a molecular biologist for a while now, but I know that you know more than the average person about cancer research. Can you tell me why Kiss and Peel and, and why Avon is taking such a big stand? Um, I think it's wonderful that they are. I think it was just one of those things that was a um, marriage made in heaven in some respects, uh, a twist of fate that just uh, felt so right because, of course, uh, the... Uh, Demographics for romance novels are exactly the demographics that uh, the Ovarian Cancer National Alliance would want to be speaking to because we really need to reach from uh, sort of early, not I suppose late teens, maybe 20s, all the way through um, to women of all ages and that's what romance novels, as you know, do. That's absolutely true. What are some of the advances that readers may not know about in the, in the study of cancer genes? Can you tell me a little bit about what you may have, may have done in the past or what research that you know, normal readers might not know about? Well, there's a number of different uh, avenues that are, I suppose, more uh, pertinent at the moment for uh, ovarian cancer. I noticed on the um, ovarian cancer website, uh, which is ovariancancer.org, uh, they uh, were actually talking about a new antibody for uh, early detection, and that's actually one of the things that I was working on, a similar sort of thing many years ago. It's always been, a, if you like, holy grail for ovarian cancer to be able to improve the detection uh, so that we can detect the cancer earlier, and that's certainly one stream of uh, research that's ongoing and will continue until we actually get something that uh, will really help in that way. But in addition to that, uh, just as I was driving to the airport, actually, I heard a, 
a report about a new sort of virus that they've developed to uh, inject into people's bloodstream and the virus actually attacks cancer cells, uh, not normal cells, it just attacks the cancer cells and that if it keeps working and developing to its full potential may be a really, really good way of ultimately treating cancer once you've detected that someone has it, uh, then you can move ahead and treat it in various ways so that the cancer doesn't become the cause of death. Even if you still have a few cancer cells, a few cancer cells aren't going to worry you. It's whether they get out of control or not. So cancer can be managed in many, many ways. That's amazing. Do you miss that kind of research as opposed to the other kinds of research that you do now with Kravitz and the Regency <laughs> and Satan? Do you have a preference? Do you ever wish that, you know, at some point someone would be a biologist hero? Oh, I sometimes do think about that, but uh, there was precious little uh, of that type of research being done back in the early 1800s. So uh, I'm sort of a bit cut out of that at the moment. But uh, in terms of um, missing the research, no, I can't say that I do, but I think that's because, as you say, the research for the books and the structuring of the books, the way I approach my writing, all of that sort of fills the void very, very well, actually. So I really enjoy what I'm doing. Before I move on, I just want to ask, because you seem so knowledgeable, what are the few signs and symptoms that women should be aware of in terms of ovarian cancer? It's interesting because they're actually, the, the very subtle symptoms are similar to what you might get if you're pregnant. And if you stop and think about it, well, that's pretty much the same thing. It's growing, something is growing in very much the same spot in the body. Uh, and the symptoms are bloating and uh, they're that horrible feeling of being very, very full when you've only eaten a little bit. And there's also abdominal pain and there's also the urinary, same urinary symptoms that you get when you're pregnant, that you, the urgency and frequency uh, aspects. And the whole point is that those symptoms are things that you can get for all sorts of reasons, but they don't normally hang around. They're just there. And if you're not pregnant and you've got these symptoms for, you know, say a week or so consistently, then maybe it's time to go and see a doctor and uh, see why these symptoms are persisting. So they're not the sort of things that make women rush out and say, oh, I've got to go to see a doctor because I can't function. Um, so women tend to push them aside because we're very busy people, aren't we? Um, yes, so ma'am, that's we why, are. That's why, you know, we need to sort of raise the awareness of these things. If these things are persisting, you need to go and see a doctor. Yes, absolutely. Now, with your new book, Viscount Breckenridge to the, to the Rescue, this is a, a bit of a, of a road trip romance. It is a bit of a road trip romance and uh, it's interesting, it's a trilogy, it's the first of a trilogy and in each of the uh, books the girls have to be kidnapped and taken to Scotland. In the first one we actually travel with them through a lot of the journey. Uh, the journey's not sort of uh, rushed over. So you get that whole feeling of actually someone being kidnapped and being taken to Scotland in real time, the real time it would have taken them to do such a thing. Uh, I actually spent quite a lot of time researching the roads and how long it would take to get from point A to point B in various ways for these books. Um, but uh, my description of that first book is that it's Errol Flynn rescues Elizabeth Bennet in the wilds of Scotland. So you've got that adventure, the <laughs> abduction, you've got the escape, the rescue, you know, you've got the whole bit there. So all of them contain a road trip. Is this something that happens in Australia commonly? Do, do Australians take road trips as well? I know we do in the U.S. and in the U.K. It's pretty common. 
Yes, exactly. Uh, I, absolutely. I think it's common in all our cultures that we take road trips. But uh, it's, it's interesting how you structure road trips differently, how you can describe them as a novelist so it doesn't become just a repetition. Um, that was probably one of the biggest um, challenges of this trilogy, how to do something, how to move people around without repeating yourself. That's very, very interesting. Now, I have a, a sort of a nosy question, and this is probably really sort of out of left field. <laughs> I know that in Australia the seasons are reversed. We're ending summer here in the United States, and you're about to head yep. into summer. With the seasons reversed and because you're writing in England, does that ever trip you up? Do you ever put the wrong season in the wrong month and have to go back to change it? No, I don't, but I think some of that comes from having lived in England for four years. So I actually... <laughs> Well, yeah, I feel the weather, you know. I mean, I really understand. I honestly believe that you can't write English weather without having lived there. <laughs> I bet that's true. It is a completely unique animal. <laughs> exactly. So you've, you've gone back to the Sinster family for this new book. What do you that's think are right. the hallmarks of a Sinster character, male or female, to readers who haven't read any of them, even though there's about 14,812 Sinsters, which is a very good thing <laughs> for us readers? What are, what oh, are the well, hallmarks of a Sinster male or female character? Okay, I think the, the Sinster male is the archetypal uh, warrior persona where a warrior has to then leave being a warrior and come back into civil society and cope with that. So they tend to be very protective. They tend to be very family protective, if you like, family-oriented. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of the archetypes for me of the male. For the women, they tend to be, they tend to take that and turn it around. Um, and because women are never warriors, but they can be very positive and very assertive and very definite in that they want a life. So... All of my female characters, particularly the ones who are sinsters, have this that I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make my life be what I want it to be. Uh, and I want to be pro very proactive, I suppose. That's probably the modern word for it. Uh, so that's, that's my feeling of, the, you know, the archetypes of the sinsters. That's brilliant. I have one last question for you. I have probably read Devil's Bride about 16 or 17 times in the last few years. It is one of my all-time favorite books. Thank you so much for this book. Have, have readers told you which one is their favorite? Have you sort of kept track which one is the reader favorite? And do you have a favorite? Okay, do I have a favorite? Probably not because I'll tell you one thing. I never reread my books. I write them. <laughs> when they go Me off... Neither. I never reread anything it. I write. <laughs> No, exactly. You know, why would you want to reread something? Because I've lived it by the time it goes out. I mean, I've, I've been over this story so many times that uh, I really, really know it. But so I never reread them. So I tend not to have, you know, the standard uh, author response to that is that, you know, my favorite book is the one I'm working on now or the one that's just about to go out. <laughs> <laughs> and to some extent, to some extent, that's actually true because that's the one that is at the moment carrying our attention. So that's our favourite for the moment. Uh, it'll change. Uh, but in terms of what the readers say, I've often found it really, really interesting that for every single book of mine, the entire lot of them, you'll always find one reader who says, of all, "I've read all your books, but for me, that one is my favourite." And so every single book of mine has at least, you know, a handful of readers who will put up their hand and say, 
you know, if I had to name which book of yours is my favourite, it'll be that one. And I find it really interesting that different things in different books strike different readers in different ways. And that's why that one is their favourite. So it's really interesting how readers are actually very different. Oh, yes, we're all very different. But we're also very passionate and take our books very personally. I, I exactly. think it's amazing that not only have you had this incredible block of, of, of body of work, but that you have this opportunity to both promote a book and raise awareness about something so important. And I think that this is my time. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I hope you get a really, really good night's sleep. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Dear Bitches Smart Authors Podcast. We do plan on doing more in author interviews, and we're going to try to cozy up to Australia again. This time, our plan is to interview Harlequin author Sarah Mayberry. We'll try not to make her stay up until 2 in the morning, though. If you've got questions you'd like us to ask Sarah Mayberry, or if you'd like to suggest an author we should interview in future podcasts, email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. That's S for Sarah. B for bitches, J for Jane, podcast at gmail.com. This music is, of course, provided by Sassy Outwater. It's called Fleur de Brazil. You can follow her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. Thanks for listening, and we wish you the very best of reading. <laughs>